the podcast of the Doral Vineyard Church. This is a message by Denver Lee. Last week, um, in the message, more than a box of rocks, we, we looked at Matthew 16, 13 to 20. And we looked at this, this whole experience where, um, where, where Jesus is talking to Peter and, and, and he de- declares that Peter you know, is, is, is more than whatever Peter was and that Peter is a rock and that Jesus is going to build his church on this rock. And we went through a lot of um, the Greek as to what Jesus was actually communicating. We looked at the word Petra, where, where, where Jesus says that um, on this rock, I will build my church. So, right? so that's the idea that we gathered last Sunday. On this rock, I will build my church. And we looked at what is the rock, what is the church, and what does it mean to build? So, so those were the three things we, we looked at, the rock, the church, and the building. Um, we said the rock is Petra, which is a, um, a mass of connected rocks. So it's not just individual rocks. It's not just a big old box of rocks. But Petra actually means a big old rock that's made up of little individual rocks. And so Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this Petra, on this connected group of rocks. So he says, Peter, you are a rock. And in this conversation, it's a dialogue, not just with Peter, but Jesus is talking to 12 other people. So, so most of the time when we read this, we think Jesus is talking to one person. Jesus is talking to a group of people. He singles out Peter because Peter answered. And he says, Peter, you are a rock. He says, but on, but on this rock, on, on, on this larger piece of rock of connected groups of individuals, when you come together, I'm going to build my church on this rock. And so we looked at the word church, which is ecclesia. And ecclesia means the assembly of called out ones. So those who he called. So he, so, so he says, I'm going to build the assembly of the called out ones on this rock-like formation. And then we looked at the word build. What does he mean that he's going to build? And we said that the, the word build is okarameo, which means to edify, which means to encourage. And so in our Western world, when we think build, we think of construction. So when Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, the idea that we get is construction. Jesus is church planting. Jesus is, is the greatest church planter of all times. Jesus is not the greatest church planter of all times because he's not talking about planting churches. He says, I'm going to build my called out ones. I'm going to edify my called out ones on this rock-like formation. I'm going to, on this rock, I will build my church, right? He's not saying that he's going to have a bunch of people meet in a room on the idea of Peter or on the idea of a statement or even on the idea of himself. He's saying that I'm going to edify you, build you up and encourage you to be the called out ones on the basis of your relationship, of your fellowship with one another. And so it is not acceptable for us to be individual rocks or a box of rocks. So we need to be the body in, in, in order for us to receive the edification, the blessing that we need, that the Lord is trying to edify you, but he will not do it with just you. And so I talked about that many of us, including myself, that I would love for God to grow me, to mature me, and to edify me by myself. I would love to stay home and just read the Bible and turn on Jesus culture, put on my headphones and listen to some good worship music and lay on my carpet and just allow the power of God to just come into me. And then I will go out and be a better person and live for Jesus and and do the Great Commission all by myself. And that is unbiblical. That is unbiblical. God does not do it because that's not how he built his church. That's not the design of the church. So he's not talking about a box. He says, if you want to be edified, if you want to grow and mature and live for me, if you want to, if you want to get this great calling out of you, it's not going to come to you only with this moment of, of, of silence in this living room and studying scripture and learning. He, he says, I'm going to edify you 
on the foundation of this larger collection of rocks. That's how I'm going to build my church. And he says, when I build my church this way, here's the thing, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because there's going to be way too many people around you to edify you and build you up. It is only when you're alone that your own thoughts will take you into the pits of hell and keep you there. I've lived it. There's nothing worse than being depressed and being depressed alone. There's nothing worse than struggling with what you're struggling with and doing it alone. But there's something different where I'm not saying that you shouldn't struggle. Many people have the idea that as Christians, you shouldn't go through anything. I'm saying that as Christians, you should go through everything that people go through because Jesus was God and he went through everything that we all go through, right? Hebrews says that he experienced everything, that we have a high priest who connects with us because he has, he has endured everything that we endured. And so the Christian life is not about avoiding obstacles. It is about going through the obstacles with the church, with the body, with people around you, that you're not doing it alone. Jesus makes himself known through the people around you. And so you can have a revelation of Jesus in a dream and come to him. But when you wake up, you need to find a body of people so that you can continue to grow in him and you can continue to know him. And so you cannot come to know God apart from humanity. You cannot come to know God apart from humanity. And it's for this reason why God became a human and presented God to you. He says, this is, if you've seen me, this human flesh and blood, you've seen the father. And Jesus is making a huge statement about how we can come to know God. And so today I wanted to, if you could turn with, to Ephesians 2, I'm going to read from verse 19 to 22. And that's going to be our focus for today. And my message is the church of God, which is the temple of God. Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. And if you have your Bibles with you, if you'd highlight this portion of it, in him, the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for, for your word, and we thank you for your spirit, and we thank you for your church. Jesus, you know where we are and who we are, and you know how we position ourselves with the people who you've put us with, Lord. You know how we position ourselves with you, and you know how we position ourselves with the church. Father, I thank you that you love the church. I thank you that you created the church. I thank you that you're coming back for your church, Jesus. And would you allow us to find ourselves and who we are made to be, not apart from the church, but within it. Father, would you come even now and begin to heal any kind of wounds that we may have of our church experiences? Father, you know what people in churches have said to us and have done to us. You know our hurts and our disappointments from the church. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come right now and, and begin to heal those places that we may receive the truth of what you say about the church and that we may live according to your word and according to your agenda, according to your kingdom. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you. Amen. So on your notes, I have three places I, I just want to look at when we talk about the church. It's the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, and then the body of Christ. Um, and, and then what that means for us. And then number one, the tabernacle of Moses, if you turn to um, Exodus 25, 
verse 8 to 10. So the Israelites are in Egypt, right? They're slaves in Egypt. Just, just a little background. They're, they're slaves in Egypt. Moses is at the burning bush. God tells him to go get my people out of Egypt. Moses goes into Egypt and he gets God's people out. That's where we see the, the Red Sea and they cross through the Red Sea and then they're on their way to the promised land, the land that God said he was going to give Abraham. So God made a promise and said, listen, you're going to enter into the best kind of life, the, the closest thing to heaven that you could ever think of. I'm going to get you there, right? And he says this and it doesn't happen right away. They actually end up in, in Egypt, which, which is terrible. But if Eventually, they, they're, they're on their way to the promised land. And on their way to the promised land, they have a little bit of detour because they're not obedient enough. They're not ready to enter into the promised land yet. Um, and so they spend some time in the wilderness. And as they're in the wilderness, God's desire is to be with his people. God's desire has always been and always will be to be with his people. And so God created it in such a way that I, I want you to understand that I am here, that my presence is here. And he gave Moses the instruction to build a tabernacle by which he would commune with God. So he says, just build a little tent, a portable building, get some sticks and just build this tent. And when you build this tent, it's going to be a place where you will meet with me where we'll commune together. Sacrifice is going to happen there. This is where, this is the meeting place that we're going to meet with God. And then when you move, you tear it down and you bring it with you, right? And, and, and this is the idea that uh, John presents when he says that Jesus tabernacled with us, that God came down and he was moving with us as we went, right? And so God gave Moses um, in Exodus 25 verse 8, um, the instructions for building him a tabernacle or for building him a sanctuary. It says, then, this is God talking to Moses. He, he says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then he gives Moses this long list of things and how to build this perfect place by which humanity can meet with divinity. Right? So they were seeing God's goodness all throughout the wilderness, but he says, build this place so that you would know that this is the place that you are to interact with me, that, that you're going to know me, that you're going to grow with me. This is the tabernacle of Moses. And then he says to build the Ark of the Covenant and, and the Ark of the Covenant. And all of this is just a brief overview. I know there's a whole lot more I could say about each one of these things, but the Ark of the Covenant is God himself, right? It's God. It's, it's, it's not an idea of, of God. It's not a picture of God. The Ark of the Covenant is God in the box. They have God inside of a box, and they have it inside of this tabernacle. And God says, this is how you ought to come and meet with me. So he says, build an Ark of the Covenant, and I'm going to dwell in this box. And you're going to put this box within your tent of meetings, and this is how you're going to come to know me. Now, to me, it, it always sounded really silly. I'm like, I don't really understand why God would do this silly thing. But culturally, if we understand it culturally, it makes a lot of sense for where the people were because we can look at things in hindsight and we can look at where we are now and not have an understanding that Moses does not have all of the understanding of God that we have right now. You have to imagine that when God met Abraham and he introduced himself to Abraham, Abraham did not have theology. Abraham was actually a pagan worshiper. And God took a pagan worshiper and said, I'm going to reveal to you me, Yahweh, Elohim, the one true God. He has no one to teach him anything. He has to learn about God by himself. 
what kind of God is he? Moses has the same experience. Moses asked him, what kind of God are you? What, what are you like? Who are you? He didn't have the opportunity to come and sit in a soft chair and listen to someone open up the scriptures and tell him about who God possibly is. He had to walk this thing daily and mess up and figure it out. And it's a whole new realm for him. And so the idea of building a tent and having God in a box is something that connects with the culture that he's in and it makes sense to him. God will always speak to you in a language that you can understand. God will always speak to you in a language that you can understand. One of the most difficult things for me as a pastor, so um, for those of you who are new here, um, I, I'm, I, I've, I've been a Christian for, for, for a certain time in my life. I got saved when I was 19 years old. I, I gave my life to the Lord. And from, from that time forward, I spent just trying to learn about who God was and what he wanted to do with my life. And it was really difficult because everyone had something different to say. You know, if you turn on the TV, you listen to different speakers, they all have something different to say about what God wants to do with your life. And it was really difficult for me to understand me. And then God called me to pastor a church. And, and it's just kind of like, I'm still trying to figure me out. And so like, I turned to the scriptures and I'm like, Lord, what do I do in pastoring a church? Like, what is the church supposed to do? And as I read through the scriptures, there, there, are, there are some things that I know fits into the, 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 the first century Palestine world of the church. And in the, in the book of Acts, there's certain things that are cultural, but there's some things that are not cultural and they're kingdom. Like this is what God is actually trying to do. And the difficulty is trying to find out what's cultural and what is kingdom. What things are just cultural in scripture and then what things are actually God is revealing something greater than a culture, bigger than a culture to us. And then it becomes more difficult in how do you interpret first century Palestine into 2015 Miami? and what we have and who we are. How do we translate that into where we are today? And that is the difficulty of living our lives as a Christian based on the Bible and having a church based on the Bible. And, and I, I invite you into the journey with me to not have it watered down and, and, to, and to not try to connect the kingdom of God in, or first century Palestine in, in, into the American dream and then try to cover it over with the kingdom of God, but to actually go after what God is saying that he wants to do with humanity and it is going to conflict with some of the American dream. It is going to conflict with, with some of the realities that are around us. And this is where Moses is. And God gives him this instruction to build a tabernacle, build a box. He's going to go into the box. And this is how you're going to meet with me. This is how you're going to know me. That's the culture that they're in. That is all that he knows. And God speaks to him in a way that he will understand and that it will make sense to, to who he is and with who the Israelites are. And, and so in, in verse 10, he says, have them make an ark. And, and, and he gives them the dimensions for the ark. And he goes on to say, like, this is the box that I'm going to live in and that you'll come to meet with me. And it was so. Uh, in, in Exodus 29, verse 45, he says, then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. After you do this, you built the tent, you built the ark, you do everything I tell you to do. This is how I'm going to dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord, their God, who have brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell with them. He brought them out of Egypt so that he might dwell with them. God's plan is always to dwell with humanity. His plan is always to live with us, to be with us. He says, I brought you out of Egypt to bring you to the promised land so that you can have your life with me. And, and that's, if, 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 if you can't connect anything else with, with the rest of what I'm going to share today, if you would understand that the purposes of God calling you out 
is so that you would live with him. Not that you would behave better. It's not that you would come to church more. He didn't call you out. It, it, it's not even so that you can feed the crazy obsession that we have with eternal life. Like, it's not even about that. The only reason why he's given us eternal life because it takes eternity to enjoy him. He says, I am so enjoyable that you're going to need eternity to enjoy me. But the, but the purpose is that I want you to enjoy me. Not that you live forever. The purpose is not living forever. You know, um, and, and, and so he says, that I might dwell among them. And this is the emphasis of all of this. God wants to live with you. He wants to dwell with you. And this is why he pushes sin out of our lives. This is why he convicts us of places where we are. This is why he leads us into new territory. And this, and this, is, this is why you can't stay in the same place where you are when he calls you out because, because there's so much more to him than where you were. And for some of you in the coming months, um, I'm going to be, I already have a few of you who the Lord has perhaps spoken a little bit about, but I'm going to encourage some of you to step out of where you are and to go into a place where the Lord is perhaps calling you. And the reason for that is there's so much to God that you cannot find him just where you are. If it takes all of eternity to experience him, like we have to move outside of the comfort zone to see the rest of him. And for this, he says, I'm going to give you a comforter for when you move out of your comfort zone and get to know the rest of me. It's when you challenge yourself to be obedient to God that you come to realize his love for you. And there's so much more to him than what you've experienced. And I want to encourage you to come to know God because all he wants to do is live with you. He wants to move into your house. All right, so let's connect all of this together. And this is going to get better in like five minutes. Just, just give me five minutes. Let me lay this foundation and then we'll get to it. Acts 7, verse 44. This is Stephen's defense. So Stephen is the first Christian martyr and um, he's about to get stoned by the folks who are trying to keep him from preaching the gospel about Jesus. And I love this because Stephen actually, like, like he's about to die and, and like he's talking so much trash. Like, he's talking so much trash that, like, he, he's like, and you all don't believe that he's God, and this is why, and, like, he calls them names. I'm like, man, this, this guy's bold. Like, most of us would be like, I don't, I don't, who, Jesus, who? I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who that man is. You better put that rock down. I ain't playing, you know, like, you're going to try to save your neck as much as you can. But Stephen's like, kill me if you want to. I love this man. I know who he is. And this is his trash-talking little sermon here. So, um, and, and if you read it in its entirety, it is, it is awesome because at the end of it, it says that, like, they just got so frustrated with him that they just, like, started throwing stones at him to shut him up because he was just talking so much trash. And that's the first Christian martyr who stands for what he believes in in the face of opposition because he knew that God wanted to live with him, that God had a plan for him. And his, his idea is not, let me try to live for as long as I can, as comfortable as I can. But he had an understanding and an experience with Christ, with Jesus, who revealed God to him. And when God gets revealed to you, it gives your life a greater purpose. And he's like, listen, I, if, 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 I, if, I can, if I denounce him and continue living, I'm not going to be living for anything worth living. Like, and some of you may not be in that place yet, but you get there after spending time with him, you realize if I denounce him, what else am I going to do with my life? It's like if you think about like, like if, if, 
if, if God forbids, like everyone around you that you love just like moves away or die or something. Like if, okay, if, if, if everyone around you moves away, not die, take that back, right? So let's say everyone around you, because I'm, because I'm around you and I want to know, right? So, so, so let's say, for instance, everyone around you moves away. All right, so let's say every, everyone around you picks up and they move to New Jersey, right? We're going to roll with it. She has the loudest voice in the room, right? So let's say ev- everyone picks up and moves to New Jersey, right? And while they're in New Jersey, there's nothing else left here for you. And, and, and then your job moves. Let's say your job or your school, they move. Let's say you're dating someone or you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, and then they move. Say your parents move. And then your church moves. What are you going to do? You're going to be like, there's nothing else really here left for me. I may as well just go. And this is Stephen. Stephen's like, listen, if I denounce him, I have no other purpose or reason to stay here anyway. So I could denounce him and live by myself with nothing. Or I could just say, this is who he is. And if I stay alive, there's nothing worth living for anyway. And this, this is how martyrdom works. Martyrdom happens when people have connected the fact that they're nothing without him. They're nothing without him. And so he says, our fathers had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness. He's talking about Moses. Um, Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make the according to, to make it according to the pattern, which he had seen and having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua. And, And so they go into the promised land with the tabernacle still right? Um, To whom God drove out our forefathers until the time of David. Verse 46, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. So at some point they get into the promised land and then we come down to King David and then King David has, has, has this revelation. If you recall, he's in his palace. David has a palace and he looks out his window and he sees God's little crusty raggedy tabernacle. And he's like, I have a beautiful palace. God has a tabernacle. I want to build God a temple. And so he tells God, I want to build a temple, a dwelling place for you to live in because I am upgraded and you are not, and I need to upgrade you also, right? And so um, David found favor in God's sight, verse 46, and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And it was Solomon who built the house for him. So, so, so David had the dream for the um, temple, and then Solomon actually built the temple. If you remember Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, he built this immaculate temple for the worship of God. Um, it says, however, uh, verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool and my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my response? And so Solomon built this temple in, in, in 1 Kings verse 8. Um, he builds this, this, this temple and they bring the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and into the temple. So now they went from a tent to this immaculate building. They still have the Ark of the Covenant, which is God himself. And now God dwells in the temple. And as God dwells in the, tem- in the temple, 1 Kings 8, verse 6, the priest then brought the Ark of the Covenant in its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and he put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. So God has just been upgraded. Now he has a temple by which people can come and worship him. There's, there's um, one major distinction I want to make b- between the tabernacle in the wilderness and in the promised land for the first season and the temple that Solomon built. In the tabernacle, 
only Jews could come into the tabernacle. Only Jewish worship could happen in the tabernacle. But when they built the temple, the, the temple had a court for the Gentiles. And so what the temple illustrated is, is and, and this is the, it's the temple that God calls the, he says, my, my house, my temple shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And so now it's all inclusive. And he's taken this thing that once belonged to only Jewish people, and he's making it global for Jews and Gentile can now come to the temple. Did you follow me? All right, so hold, hold, hold that. He moves from only Jewish people to now Jews and Gentiles can be in the tabernacle or in the temple together. So the body of Christ, John 2, verse 13. Why I'm sharing all of this will make sense here. It was almost time for the Jewish Passover and Jesus went up to Jerusalem into the temple courts. So now Jesus is at this temple right? This huge temple that they upgraded from with the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, Jewish people only. The temple now, Jews and Gentiles can come and worship God. The Ark of the Covenant is there. Like this is a, this is a place where they are worshiping God and they're meeting together. This is the body of all people of all nations in the temple. And in the temple courts, he found the selling of cattle and sheeps and doves and others sitting at the table exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep, cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Stop at verse 15 there. When Jesus comes, John says of him that when he comes, he tabernacled with, with men, that the word became flesh and tabernacled um, among us. When Jesus comes, Jesus comes, he says first, for the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus comes in order that he might bring the kingdom of God to the Jewish people, right? And then in, in verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. And then the disciples remembered that it's written that zeal for his father's house will consume him. I'm gonna jump down to verse 19. Jesus answered the Pharisees who were asking what authority he had to do this. Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And in verse 21, the temple that he had spoke about was his body. What Jesus is doing here, he's changing the idea that they had always had about the temple and he's taking it personally. He said, my body is the temple. He has, he has, he, he, we, we have gone from the, 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 the tent, the sheet, the tabernacle. Now we are in a physical building, the temple. And now he's saying now the, the temple is, is now human flesh. God has been upgraded once more. And so Jesus would have sat in the same place like David, looked out his window and said, this old shabby thing, people are selling and stealing and wheeling and dealing. And I'm going to upgrade from this temple now to the body. And so if you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it again in three days. And they said, oh, he's talking about his body now. Now the temple has a new definition. So, it's, so the place that God is now going to live is no longer the tent. The place that God is not going to live is no longer this immaculate building that David ordained and that Solomon built that has gold and silver and is the, and is the nicest thing in the world. He says, now it is the body. Now the body is the temple. And I want to prescribe to you that it is not getting worse. God is not downgraded. He is upgraded because the building is not worth as much as the body. And so he says, now the body is the place where I will now live. And this is why corruption was not allowed in the church. So if you remember last week, we talked about the body of Christ is, is the people who come together and form this one big church. So you all who are sitting in this room are the church, right? You're the church. You are the body. When you come together in an assembly, 
you are the church. You are the assembly of the called out ones, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now, Paul, Paul is making this distinct connection here between what, what Christ did and what he understands to be the new temple. He says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So he says, now you are the body of Christ. Christ said that his body is the temple, right? He says, the body is now the temple. He says, all of you are now the body of Christ. And God has placed in the church, in the assembly of the called out ones, first the assembly um, of, of apostles, prophets, and then teachers, and then miracles, then gifts, then healing, then helping, then guidance, and then all different kinds of tongues. And he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. Now, desire eagerly the greatest gifts, and then he starts to talk about the gift of love, right? So Paul is spelling out that we are the body, that we are the temple, that we are now the thing, we are, we are the place where God meets with man. Like your, your body, you individually, you are the place where God and humanity will, will meet. God and humanity, God and, God and your neighbor. So the person who needs to meet God, the person who needs to come to know God, they will no longer come to know God by coming to the tabernacle. They will no longer come to know God by coming to the temple. They will come to know God by coming to the temple. Because you are the expression for who God is. Jesus comes and says, the body is now the temple. And he says, this is how I'm going to build my church. When all of these little temples come together and make this big temple, that is the church. That is the place on, on which I'm going to build this long-standing dream of God's heart. First Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. And you together are God's temple. It says you together are God's temple. It's when we come together that we form God's temple. There, there's some people that have an understanding that this space here is called a temple. And, and, and some people call it a temple or they call it a sanctuary. This place is nothing until you all come in it together. That's when this space has meaning. I remember some years ago as a youth pastor, I wanted to use this space to have a, a fundraiser for the kids to go to Haiti. Um, and we had a little... Um, party here that we were selling tickets and we wanted to invite people. And some people were like, but this is the temple. Like, this is the sanctuary. Like, no, it's not. This is like, it's like half of a room. The walls are gone. And you know what I mean? Like, this is half of a room and the floor is, like, if this is God's temple, I, I, I mean, come on. It means nothing until you all come and fill it and you're in one place. He, he says, so this is what Paul's talking about. He says, if anyone destroy God's temple, not the building, right? And so you see people, they can bomb churches if they want to. It's just a building. You could destroy the building. But if someone wants to destroy the church, they take the Christian out. That's how you destroy the church. I'm not even talking about killing you. I'm just talking about getting you from meeting together. If I can get you from meeting together, the church is no longer in existence. So you can keep the building if you want to. Just stop meeting together and the church is done. You will no longer be edified to follow Jesus. You will no longer be challenged to bring the gospel into the world. And so the moment that you stop meeting together, the church is done. We, we can continue paying rent on the building, but we don't have a church. Because the church, Paul says, is that it's the temple. And he says, it's when you are together, that is the temple of the Lord. It is your togetherness that creates the church. All right. Let me give this to you out of um, 
when Paul writes in Ephesians, in, in the verse that we're focused on, um, in verse 22, Ephesians 2, he, he says, And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. You are being built together. Like, that's the process of the church. Like, my job is to help you all get built together, that you would be a place, in, in, that you become a dwelling place in which God would live by his spirit. Like, yes, Christ dwells in you, but it means nothing until you dwell with each other. That is the expression of the church. That is the expression of the, the temple. This, this, is why, this is why the scripture says, when two or three gather together, that's when he comes, because that is the temple. So the temple has been destroyed. The tabernacle is no more. And then Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my tabernacle, my church, my sanctuary. I'm going to build my church on this idea of you all coming together. Because buildings will come and go. But I'm trying to build a people. And this is why the togetherness portion of this matters so much. 1 Corinthians 5. Now, yeah, I could touch on that. It's a controversy in, in Corinth. And I'm going to say some things about this that some of you may disagree with. In Corinth, there's an issue of sexual immorality that's in Corinth, right? There's a young man who's sleeping with his father's wife. And, 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 and Paul comes and, and, and Paul writes a, a letter and he finds out that the church actually has this guy, not the assembly, not the building, the assembly of called out ones. The people who are called to follow Christ, they assemble together and someone in the assembly is, there's a young man in the assembly who is sleeping with his father's wife. And so Paul writes in response to that in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 5, and he says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, verse 2, and you are proud. It is a response. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you. In this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. In verse 4, we can highlight this together. He says, So when you are assembled and I am with you in the spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, this seems rather harsh. Paul is saying, listen, there's a guy in your assembly of people who's sleeping with his father's wife and you all are proud of it. You're celebrating it. He says, this is what I would have done. I would have kicked him out of the assembly and handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, for the saving of his soul. And I've heard many people say, like, this is, well, this has some spiritual meaning. No, Paul is like, you need to get rid of him. Now, in, to- <laughs> in today's culture, we wouldn't do that. And I want to tell you why we, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that because his membership in the church today would not be as it was then. Because see, he is effectious in the body as the body is supposed to be. The reason why people don't get really kicked out of church for stuff like that is because you aren't really a part of the body anyway. You, you just show up to the building. You just show up to the building. It's only when he's in the assembly with you 
And whoever's in the, like, he's going to speak into your life. He's going to encourage you to look like him. He's going to reflect you. You're going to learn who you are from who he is. That's what the body's supposed to do. He's going to edify you. He's going to tell you how to live. He's going to speak into your marriage. You're going to speak into his. When you have that kind of relationship and fellowship, he becomes like cancer. So Paul says, you need to get this cancer out of the body because, because the body's functioning correctly. You all are going to listen to him. That's why you're proud. The reason why we wouldn't do that today is because, unfortunately, we don't really have that kind of a fellowship. We don't really have that kind of a close. Like, if someone is doing that in the church today, we're just like, eh, we'll just pray for him. Why? Because he's not affectious amongst the body. He doesn't have the influence that he's supposed to have. But Paul says, the system is working right. And because the system is working right, if you drop this little thing into the blood, it'll circulate into the whole body. But now, it's not, it's like, it, it, what we have now, and, and, and again, this is a cultural thing, like right now, someone who would do that within the church, it's like topical lotion. It's just like, ah! It's, 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 it's not a drop into the blood system. It doesn't go into the bloodstream and circulate. And so it could be tolerated. So Paul goes on, and now Paul is making a distinction here. He's talking about the physical body and then the body of Christ, and they're interchangeable. This is kind of like when he talks about the bride, and he's talking about the church. He's saying, he's saying, husbands, this is how you ought to relate to your wives. And he says, you might think I'm talking to husband and wife, but I'm really talking about Christ and the church. Paul is doing a, a very similar thing here when he talks about the body of Christ and your physical bodies, right? So I want you to think about this, and I want you to understand both of them in terms of your physical body and then the body of believers who are around you. First Corinthians six, verse 12 to 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, right? He's talking about the body of Christ, and he's talking about your physical body, Right? It's, 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 a, it's a both and. That by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So this is, this is the next chapter after he talks about kicking this guy out of the assembly. So, so he's, he's still on this track, right? He, he's trying to explain about the young man, but not just the young man, about your physical body of Christ. Because he's already established that you all are the body of Christ. So he's talking about your physical body, but he's also talking about the body, the assembly of believers at the same time. Um, verse 15 I'm sorry, verse, verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. That's what the body is about. The two will become one flesh. This is why he can no longer remain in the assembly because we're doing it right and the two has become one flesh. But whoever is united with the, with the Lord is one with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And some people always ask, like, why? Like, like why is sexual sin? Like, if you look at that in terms of the body, sexual sins within the body, you're not just corrupting you because we're talking about the, the assembly of believers. And so the sexual impurity that would exist within the body would have to be you with someone else within the body. 
And so if you sin against the body, you're corrupting the body because there's some, because now your, your, your sin is infecting the body of believers. That's what he's talking about. That's why the sexual sin is a greater sin because you're taking someone down with you. That's what Paul is explaining here, right? And so he begins, and I'll, I'll finish here. He says, do you not know that your, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He says, your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is your body. This is, the, this is the temple, this assembly of gathering. This, these groups of believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you were once bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Do you guys see the connection that he's talking about your physical body? But he's also talking about the body of Christ. When you all come together, he says, this is, this is why and this is how. And then in, in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5, he responds to this whole thing in the letter with the young man. Um, in, in, in verse 6, actually, he says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him and accept him back into the body. Why? Because they kicked him out. And like, with, and like with Stephen's defense, if he's not a part of the body, he has no meaning and he has no definition. We talked a few weeks ago about when you bring someone to the Lord, you're calling them out of everything they had ever been in and you're inviting them into something brand new. Jesus said, it's for this reason why I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And the sword I'm going to bring is going to separate mother from father and it's going gonna, it's gonna to divide families because someone is going to come to the Lord. And he says, this what, he says, this is what happens when you bring the gospel to the Jewish people. He says, only go to the Jewish people. And when you bring the gospel, there's going to be a conversion. When there's a conversion, a mother is, is, is going to be divided from the daughter because the daughter is going to come to Christ and, and it's, it's going to be bloody, right? He says, but I came to bring a sword to divide and split up this family. I didn't come to bring peace because they're not going to want this family member to go, but they are going to go. You're going to drag them out of their house and invite them into something new, into something big into something different. When they come out of something and you invite them into your family, you are responsible for this. So he says, if I kick him out, he has nowhere to go. Paul says, send him out of the body for the destruction of his flesh, for the saving of his soul. He can't go back home because now he's a Christian and no one else is a Christian but us. He has no other life, no other purpose, no other existence. He, will, he must repent out there because he will not find the love. He will not find the acceptance. He will not find the life that he needs apart from us. And so then he comes back, and in 2 Corinthians 5, he has repented. And this is, this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6 as he goes on. Uh, for the sake of time, you can read uh, 2 Corinthians 6. But in, in verse 14, he says another one of these things that we've kind of interpreted poorly. He, he says, do not be unyoked with, with unbelievers. Right? He says, what, what, what fellowship do you have with unbelievers? He's not talking about you and your Christian friends. It's not like, again, this is, this is a cultural idea that the people who you hang with, they are the church. Like these, this is your body. He says, so if you have people within your body that are infectious, what fellowship is that? That's the point that he's making. I'm going to wrap this up with uh, first, first Peter 2. I'm not going to wrap it up just yet, but with, with first Peter 2, um, <laughs> This is, so, so this, this guy, Peter, Peter is the one who Jesus spoke to um, in, 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 in Matthew 16, where, where, where Jesus said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and etc. So when Peter talks about the church and the rock, you have to understand that he's the one who was present. He was physically there when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. In 1 Peter 2, Peter now writes, therefore, rid yourself of all malice and of all deceit and of all hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, create spiritual 
spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And verse 4 says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God, says you also are like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. So as you come to him, you are also like living stones and are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and a sacrifice for him. It says, it says, as you come together, this is what is happening. Peter understands that you are a living stone. You are the living stone. And when you come together with other living stones, you create this rock on which Jesus edifies, build, supports, and grows his church. This is, this is the basis by which you grow or you get destroyed. And this is the idea of church. And then in the end of that, in verse 9, Peter ends this by saying, you are God's chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light, the called out ones. You are the assembly of those who he, who he called out. Once you were not a people, you were just a box of rocks. Once upon a time, you, you weren't a people. You were just someone who was out there, possibly knew God, has questions about God. It says, but now you are the people of God. And once you did not have mercy, but now you have received mercy. It says, once, once you weren't a people, but now together you have become a people. And this is the idea and my conviction that you belong together. That you, you belong to the body of believers. I'll end it here for real this time. John 17. John 17, verse 20. This is, this is by far one of my favorite portions of Scripture, John 17. Jesus writes and says, this is Jesus praying. Jesus doesn't write. Jesus says, um, as John writes, um, he's praying to the Father. This is, this is as Jesus is about to go. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and this is his prayer. He said, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples. He says, I'm not just praying for the 12 anymore. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We believe in him through the message of the 12. So Jesus is praying for us. And he says that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us and that the world may believe that you have sent me. And it is our fellowship, it is our unity by which the world will know that God is the one who sent Christ. It is based on your fellowship, not on the greatness by which you can share the word of God, not how much scriptures you can recall. It's not even about your relationship with God personally. I knew lots of people who had a relationship with God personally, and most of it was self-righteous because all they could tell me is about how good they were. But it is within the assemblies, when you get to see love in action, when you get to see people loving other people, he says, this is what testifies of God. Jesus continues, and he says in verse 22, I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought together in complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. This is how the world know that they're loved. This is, this is the whole idea here. Paul, Paul prays in Ephesians 3. He's praying to the church in Ephesus. He's praying for the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that out of, his right, out of his glorious riches, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together 
with all that the Lord's, with all the Lord's holy people. So you have power together. This is, there's a togetherness that, that Paul is grasping to grasp how wide and how deep and how long and how deep is Christ's love. And to you, the love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the measure of all faith. And Paul is, Paul is driving home a point that I think that it, it, it's not the exciting message about how you can live better. It is the exciting message about why Christ has called you. Like Christ has called you so that you can display God to the world. It, it, our, our church has taken on the mission or the vision statement of what we want to do. And it's simply for us to know God together, that, that we may come to know God. And you can only come to know God through humanity. And so our fellowship together allows us to know God. And then also, as Christ prayed, that people would come to know him through the fellowship that we have. And our second portion of this is not just to know God, but it's also to make God known. The purposes for which you were saved, when you were saved, if you listen up here, when you were saved, all of you who are Christians, your salvation and your walk with God is no longer about you becoming better and better and better and being more righteous. This is, this is not the goal that I set before you. The goal that I set before you is that we, would, that we would do fellowship in such a way that it testifies to the world that God is real. There should be a love that exists amongst believers, that we share the unity of Christ, that your unbelieving friends would come to know that God is real. I was talking to a member of my family the other day who, who, who questioned how we, like, we just, we enjoy, my wife and I, we enjoy other people. We enjoy other Christians. And some of our family, they don't understand how we can, like, be amongst people who are not them. One of the greatest questions I had upon pastor in this church was that, this is in the city of Doral, which is namely Hispanic, and you don't speak a word of Spanish, you know? And, and, then, and then for some of my more vocal friends, the concern was, you're a black guy and most of the people in your congregation are white. Like, how, how long are they going to stay and have fellow, like, do, do, can, can they have a black pastor? And I think that what happens here is that it's, there's something so unique. I, 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 I don't believe in the black church. I don't believe in the Hispanic church. I, 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 if, if we understand specifically what Paul is talking about here, Paul, Paul is saying that there's something that happens when people walk into this room and they see a body of believers that would gather over no other cause. There, there was a time a few years ago, my, last year, my, my wife and I, every Saturday, we used to have brunch, and we used to invite people from the church to come to our house for brunch. And I remember one Saturday, there was this older woman who was sitting in our living room, just like having some treats and drinking coffee. And I'm thinking, this, this older white woman, I'm like, there's no reason why she would be in my house. There's no other reason why she would ever come into my house. She's sitting on my, she's having coffee with me. There's no other reason why. But we've gathered around this God, this fellowship of him. Let me tell you something. Every other religion glory in the temples that they have. It's all about the place. It's all about the figure. Whether it's your, whether it's your God-like idol with the gut, or whether it's your building with the steeples, whatever it is, 
whether it's your shrine, whatever it is that they have, that is their temple. Some people don't even show up to it. They just send a check to keep it going. That's their shrine. And from every religious building, from every religious place, some people have their mats that they have to roll out to do the stuff that they have. Jesus says, I give you each other. He says, you are the temple. I don't give you steeples. I give you people. This is what he gives us. And he says, this is the place where God will dwell. In you, when you live in stones, come together. And it is impressive to the world. It is impressive to much of my family, to to much of my wife's family. It is impressive to see that there are people who we love and people who we care for. There's some people who don't even speak English well, and we invite them over and we struggle through this conversation. It's like this doesn't even make sense. But there's just a love that we understand that exists. They're like, this is the church. This is what Christ is building. This is where the fellowship happens. It is very easy to be around people who are like me because for the most part, I love me. And there's nothing that I would like more than more of me. And if I want more of me, I know the neighborhood to go into. I know the people to meet so I could be around more people like me. And so when I talk, every time I say to greet one another, you're greeting people who are just like you. And then you go home, more of you. And you probably married someone who's just like you. And your kids, they're little yous. And then you get a job and no one is like you, you quit it. I need to work in a place where people are like me. I I love me. I need to be around me as much as I can get. Some of you may have pictures of you in your house. You go go home, it's it's me again. Love me. Love me. You get bored, you take a selfie. Me. Right? This, this This is the idea and this is the picture of the me. But there's something that happens when you're around people who are nothing like you. They are completely different from you. And if you can have fellowship in that place, two minutes, all right. It is, it is not uncommon. This is, this is the difference with, with what the rest of the world is doing. It is not uncommon that your friends, your families or whatever, um, who, who, who go out and, and, and hang out with other, like they're people who are just like them. You know, um, as a police officer, I, 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 I work, with, um, work with a police department of like 3,000, right? And people are typically, like, hanging with people. The black cops are with the black cops. The Hispanic cops are having Cuban coffee with the other, you know, it's just, it's just people just hang with people who are like them. You get 10 people in a room, you find the ones who you're most like, and then you start to hang with them. Like, that is typically how we work. But then Christ calls people who are nothing like us. And he says, I'm going to build my ecclesia on this idea. And I'm going to put life in you and make you live in stone. And the life that's in you is going to join with this other stone and you're going to become this rock. And so you may not understand the language that they speak, but they're going to edify your life in a very profound way. And this is how I'm going to edify and build my church. You, can, you, you guys can come on up, the worship team. So, so it says, this is how I'm going to grow and build and edify my church. This is God's idea in how he makes himself known to the world. When you got saved, you didn't get saved for you. You got saved to make God known into the world. This is why you were saved. One minute. I pondered the other day. I pondered the other day as to why God would draw people to himself to make himself known. 
like, why is it that, that, that God wants me to display love in such a way that people would come to know him? Right, like, like for those of you who are uncomfortable with evangelizing, talking about God with your friends, inviting people to church, inviting people to your small groups, inviting people to come to your home to have spiritual conversations, for those of you who are hesitant in that, I think a big part of it is like understanding why would God want me to make, like, why does he want to become known in this large kind of way? Like, like why is he drawing people to himself? And then when he draws people to himself, he draws them away from themselves because you got to be selfless to really grasp this God. And so it's like, why is he like, and so as, as, a, as an atheist, I had the idea that God was really just self-absorbed. And like, he just wanted people to like, it was all about him. You know, like this is the idea. Like, it, was, it, was, it was all about him. But then as, as, as we were singing earlier about the greatness of God, I consider that there is no other entity in the world that's greater. What else would he draw us to? To what else would you invite someone into? What is greater than him? There, there is nothing greater than the God of this universe who is love. If he found something greater to draw people to, then he would have to draw himself to that because it would be greater than him. He is the greatest thing in the universe. Everybody needs him. There it is. Everybody needs him. Everybody needs him. Especially the people who are around you that you think will reject the gospel, they need him. Everybody needs him. There is none that he has written off yet. Everybody needs him. Some of you might be in this room, and, and, it's, and it's not for your friends, it's for you. You need him. You need him. Nothing else satisfies, and you need him. And the, and, and the way that he makes himself known to you is through people. It's through the people around you. This is God's idea, not mine. If it, was, if it was up to me, I would just have you guys go home and sit on a pillow and meditate and just know God. Like, because that's so much easier. But because it's not up to me, and God decided that humanity is the best way for him to become known— I invite you to really consider that and what that looks like. Do you have a group of other Christians who will edify you, who will grow with you? Do you have a place, do you have a people around you who are keeping you accountable? Do you have people who can pray for you? Do you have people who knows the, in, the ins and outs and the depths of what you're going through? Do you have a group of people who together you're making God known to other people who don't know him? Are, are you together displaying God to the world? Because if you're not, you're living your life without purpose and it makes no sense. This is the greatest thing that you could live for. And it's for this reason why we have created these small groups. That's, that, that's one of the, the things that the small groups are for, is to help those of you who don't have that. Like nine small groups, here, here you go. Fit into something somewhere. Find some people who are Christian. Be the church. Be the church that Christ is building. Be the church that Christ is building. This is the temple. This is where he will dwell. He will not dwell in an empty room. He will dwell where two or three gather because that is his temple. You are his temple. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to live with you. We hope you enjoyed this message from the Doral Vineyard Church by Denville Leaf. For more information, please visit us at doralvineyard.org.